Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and this week we're talking about reporting. We want to consider how events become information and how information becomes news. And crucial to this process is the figure of the news reporter filing the copy for print or electronic media, which remains our main source of knowledge about what's going on in the contemporary world. The intrepid war reporter is one of the most admired figures of our time. The low-life gossip hound is probably one of the most despised. But whether writing about politics or sport, fashion or science, the reporter doesn't only tell us the news, but creates it and mediates it, deciding under various pressures what is newsworthy and how to present it to the reading or viewing public. So, who wants to be a reporter and what does it take? Who are reporters answerable to? And where is the line drawn, if it can be drawn, between news and opinion? I have two very experienced reporters in the studio today. Keith Richberg has a long career as a reporter, editor and foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and has recently taken up the job of director of Hong Kong University's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Ilaria Maria Sala is a journalist and author based in Hong Kong. She writes for Quartz and also reports for the Wall Street Journal in the US and The Guardian in the UK, among other print and media outlets. Keith Richburg, first of all, um, let's try and build up a profile of the reporter. So if you were interviewing for a reporting job, what sort of things would you be looking for? Ah, well, good question. Uh kind of reminds me what I sometimes tell the students. I rem- I'm reminded of an old quote from a British newspaper editor who once said, to t- be a journalist, you need, uh, you need a little literary ability, a plausible manner, and a certain rat-like cunning. But uh, actually, okay. but I, you, <laughs> I'd probably... You, you have all of these? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'd probably refine it for the uh, modern-day era, and I'd mm. say, instead of rat-like cunning, I'd probably say just an innate curiosity, because you know, I've had to you know, interview uh, prospective journalists for jobs or for internships in some of my bureaus around the world. And the first thing I was looking for was somebody who's just very curious about everything in the world, just an innate curiosity about things. Um, an ability to write well is obviously, but that's kind of a given um, if you're looking for a job when as a journalist. When you say write well, it's a particular kind of writing, isn't it? It's a particular kind of writing. It's It's being able to write with clarity um, and write for a broad audience, which is a little bit different from academic style writing. It's a little bit different from, you know, writing research reports or even writing poetry. It's ability, an ability to see things and be able to translate it in easy words, in easy language for the audience to understand. So taking a very complicated or complex situation or an unusual place and finding that hook or finding that angle that's going to make it relatable to something to someone who's reading the story whether they're in the the UK or the US or China making it universal and not only write well but also presumably write fast well y- y- in this day and age of social media and 24/7 news cycles yes write fast because you uh, can't sit around like Proust and ponder <laughs> the qualities of the next sentence, you've, you've got to get the stuff out. You've got to get it out fast. I mean, it depends on what you're doing because obviously there's breaking news, which has to be done fast. But mm-hmm. then there are also the more the longer term, the more reflective pieces, the feature stories, the uh, pieces that take a little bit more in-depth reporting. That There you can take a little bit more time to get the prose right. But So it's different types of reporting to require different skills. So some reporters are I'm looking for 
those who can jump into a situation and understand it quickly and write fast. And there are the others who I know are going to give it that kind of thoughtful step back and uh, mm-hmm. really kind of go a, a couple of layers deeper. You know, just like I say, peeling the, un- the layers off the onion, just trying right. to understand what's going on so they can then translate that in a way for the audience to understand. And research abilities? Research abilities, but uh, it, it, research abilities, yes. But in addition to being a good researcher, it's also uh, and here's where the rat-like cunning, I suppose, comes in. You have to have very good BS detectors because there's a lot of contradictory research out there. So you've got to be mm. able to filter out, you know, what's good research from bad research. Who's telling you the truth? Who's not? Knowing, you know, I, can't, I don't expect any reporter to know everything, but I mm. do expect them to know where to go to get the good information or who to talk to. To find out. I mean, I, you know, when I was a journalist in China, for example, I had to write about everything from food safety to farms to the aerospace industry that China was uh, constructing to military aircraft. Now, obviously, you can't be an expert on all those things, so it's a trick of knowing who to call and who you can trust to say, you know, I'm writing about China's space program. Explain this to me. Or I'm writing about China's new aviation industry. Explain this to me. I'm writing about the automobile industry in China. You know, who do you call to give you the background and the information that you can trust telling your reader? Okay. And then another question would be, I'll put this to you, Iradia. Do you, what kind of preparation do you need, if you need any, before you actually start, go out on the job with your notebook and pencil? Does it, do you need a journalistic training? Did you have one? I don't think a journalistic training is indispensable. I do she's think it's important. She's looking very cautiously at Keith, <laughs> <laughs> who's the head of a journalism school. <laughs> no, I am. Um, I don't think a journalistic training is indispensable, as I say. I think it can be useful. It can come in handy. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I got that on the job. And uh, you can acquire it on the job. It's a uh, what you need to know in terms of prior knowledge about how you interview someone or about how you record an interview or how you check your facts. These are really things that um, you can pick up as you go along quite quickly, as long as you have the one quality that Keith was talking about, which is this curiosity, which really is, I think, the one common characteristic for journalists who enjoy doing what they do. And there's lots of reason to enjoy this and lots of reasons not to enjoy it. It can be, uh, it can be a, a tough job, not so much only if you are a war correspondent, in which case it's a tough job for very obvious reasons. But, you know, you, you deal with so many different demands at the same time. Um, Today, both good and bad, you're not allowed to get away with even a tiny mistake because Mm. then things are put online and you have uh, an always surprising amount of people who are going to read your piece and find a nuance they disagree with. Now, if it's a disagreement, you can live with it. If you've got your facts wrong, then that's a different issue and it's very uncomfortable. That means that Again, you have to pick up on the job and day to day this kind of ability to both uh, keep interested in the subject and be able to tell what is right and what is dicey. Supposing you're covering I don't know, something like the, the recent Hong Kong elections. Right. Um, lots of people want to tell you what happened and what it means. 
uh, am I right? And you, as as the reporter, you've got to somehow adjudicate between them. You mustn't be overwhelmed by this or that view. Is that the kind of toughness that you're talking about? Um, you've got to be critical. You've got about to be critical, sources. and we are human, so obviously we are going to have candidates we find more. We, we like more than others or candidates that we think are generally more believable than others or more honest than others and uh, maybe more personable than others even, mm-hmm. whatever their political opinions are. And so one important thing is that whatever you're writing, this personal preference doesn't show through and uh, that you keep, you know, every time people say you have to keep balance, that's such a an overrated word because, you know, it's like... Yeah, of course I'm balanced. I'm not going to say I hate this person. But at the same time, you mustn't forget that while you're trying to be balanced, there is truth and there are lies. Sometimes it's less clear cut than that. Sometimes you have to give a perspective of what is out there. But then sometimes a candidate is lying to you and you have to be able to say that. Mm. And you have to be able to, you know, not give this kind of impression that, any opinion is worth the same as any other one because some opinions are just based on very faulty facts, on uh, sometimes a faulty individual, sometimes uh, a vested interest that you have to dismantle. So especially if we are talking about people we interview and if you're talking about uh, quotes and sources, you give them more or less the same space, but then you have to frame them in the context in which they were uttered. And uh, I think most of the time I prefer to read and so I prefer to write things where I let the reader connect the dots. You don't want to be preachy because that is not very respectful of your audience. Mm -hmm. At the same time definitely do put all the dots there so that they can be connected because especially if we're talking about elections and we're talking about politicians politicians lie. That's what they do. And you have to let this come through if you you find that this is what is going on. I want to come back in a moment to this question of impersonality that you raised because it seemed to be a very interesting aspect of the job. But before I do that um, I want to continue to build up the sense of the landscape in which the reporter works. So Ilaria is talking about different sources that come to you, you find them up, and what's going on, can you give me a quote, and how do you understand this? And you have to navigate your way through that. But reporters also work for people. They, they work, they're answerable to editors and to newspapers, and eventually the newspaper, and the newspaper has an owner and so on. Are you under pressure, Keith, are you conscious of the 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 organ that you're writing for, the newspaper or the broadcasting station or whatever it is? Does that make a difference to how, what you write? Uh, the ownership of the company does not make a difference. What makes a difference to me and I think to you know, most reputable journalists, especially in the American tradition, is your audience. You mm. know who your audience is. But you know uh, the owner of the paper, the corporate interest, uh, really, uh, you know, take no, you know, you don't take any regard to that when There's you're choosing no what to write. Such things as sort of party line or whatever. Well, there is a part, well, most newspapers in the U.S. and even in the European tradition will take an editorial position. Mm-hmm. But however, the journalist in the field, we always say that we exercise in the U.S. We use the phrase church-state-state separation. There's a wall between church and state. Oh, There's good. a wall between those editorial pages. 
where people are allowed to write opinion columns of any stripe versus the news stories where the journalists are out there just trying to collect the facts. So you would end up with a situation where, for example, the editorial page of my paper, The Washington Post, supported it was a big supporter of the war in Iraq. But you would not look at the news pages and say the news pages were supporting mm. the war. They tried to give you know, a pretty balanced story. I know that because I was based in Paris at the time and was writing stories about the anti-war sentiment among Europeans. And I never would, I never would have gotten a phone call or anything saying that my stories had to match the editorial line of the paper. So that's why they, we say that there's that church-state separation. It may be a little uh, finer, that line, in some of the European countries where the papers may have – like in Paris where I live, for example, we know that Liberation is a left-of-center paper. You know that uh, Figaro is a right-of-center paper. So and they might cover stories with mm -hmm. a little bit more of that slant. But still, I think you would probably have the journalists there who are just trying to give you an, a balanced viewpoint of things. But where it does come in, that knowing your paper is knowing who the audience is. And for example, when you work for the New York Times, for example, you know that your main audience, it's a global audience, but you know your main audience is New York City and New York State. Yeah. Whereas New York, it's a liberal you know, it's a very liberal place. It's a place where they believe in, you know, uh, you know, gay marriage. It's a place where they believe in pro-choice. So the types of stories they pick would probably reflect what the audience wants to read about. Same with when you, when you work for the Washington Post. You know, among your audience, uh, Washington D.C., you're going to have a big foreign policy audience. You're going to have people who work for the State Department, the World Bank. All the embassies are based there, so you can write stories with a certain angle that might be of interest to that foreign policy community. So knowing your paper means more like knowing your audience. I always say that the journalist, the reporter, he doesn't work for his sources. He doesn't work for his own, his publisher. He doesn't work for his editor. He works for his audience. And he's trying yeah. to find stories that are of interest to that audience. And, you know, it's different audiences depending on where they live, which papers they read. Having said that, the real explainer that you have to do preemptively is to the editor. Because it's yeah. true that you're writing for the audience. But you don't get to the audience unless you somehow manage to go beyond the big dam that is the editor. And uh, the editors normally have this fairly complicated um, task. I'm, I'm talking about especially foreign editors, uh, cultural pages editors, economics editors, so the ones that basically a foreign correspondent would be dealing with mm. the most. And uh, normally they sit sometimes in the general headquarters, sometimes in the regional ones, and those are a bit more in touch with what is going on. But if you're sitting, I don't know, in New York, in Washington, in Paris, in Rome, and someone calls you from Hong Kong saying that this amazing artist is coming up, they're like, yeah, well, that's so far away. Tell me why I should care. And you often do know that people my care more than this editor does. So you really have to make this kind of hard sell. And uh, editors are extremely courted by every single reporter out in the ground. So and you're in competition with all the other stories. You're in huge competition with yeah. all the other stories <laughs> and with the personality of the very editor who may be interested in arts or not, may be interested in Asia or not, may be interested in uh, very, I don't know, breaking news or maybe they want a slower look at things. So that is always, I think, one of the greatest obstacles in a sense. Things are changing very much today and this is when also we can go back to your previous question about training, which is um, even the, say, classic traditional media all have a website. Many 
media now is website only. And that means that if it's online only, often you have a bit more space for things that would have been considered way too niche a few years ago. Uh, so this is an advantage. This is of, a big advantage. Yeah. Speed has to be actually even faster than before, mm-hmm. though. That's the, maybe disadvantage to some extent. And uh, you can reach more people, obviously, no matter where they are geographically. So that as well is an advantage. So the way in which media has been shifted to the net means that you do have a, a broader scope and much more room to write stories, and yet you also need to have this constant training, this constant updating of your own skills. Now we've got social media where there's a gigantic amount of stuff being spewed out. Um, when you are writing for reputable newspapers, there's also you have to be very careful about fact-checking and so on, but a lot of social media is subject to no such constraints. Um, and I wonder if, I wonder how, from your point of view as a if you don't mind me saying, a more traditional kind of journalist. Um, how does this affect your work? Because in a sense, the competition out there has now become amateur, but mm. very prolific. I think speed is the enemy of good journalism. Mm. And so I think we're seeing a lot of bad journalism out there. And I really do believe that uh, there is a move or a flight to quality, particularly in a time of a big news story, a big event, a crisis. If there's an earthquake or a presidential election in the U.S., you will see this flight to quality. You will see people gravitating towards the traditional media to, to make sense of all the chatter and clutter and, and that's out there. Do you really think so or do you think they should be doing that? Well, I think, I think, I think, that it's, I think you, you would see the numbers showing that. Uh-huh. I mean, when there is a big event in the world, a terrorist attack or uh, the U.S. elections, you'll see the numbers for somewhere like the CNN will go up. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, the Washington Post and New York Times, you will see their numbers on online and subscriptions going up because people – there's so much information or misinformation out there that people know, let's go to a name that I can trust to make sense of all of this. It's during the periods when there is no big story out there that you can find all of this you know, chatter and clutter out there. And, but I do think that that makes it imperative on the journalist to you know, continue that kind of quality – to make sure that when people do go to those names you trust, you know whether it's La Stampa or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or Washington Post, that they're getting the real story there. So that's why accuracy, verification, objectivity is okay. to, to the degree. Well, here. All right. That's well. This is of course very reassuring yeah. to hear. Let's hear how it works. What we see is we get up in the morning, we read the story in the newspaper or, or online. The process is where does it start? Some stories are editor-generated. Those are so the ones. They're, they're phoning you. They're up phoning saying, you up and say, "Hey, here's a good story." About, you know, yeah. sometimes those are not bad stories, and sometimes they're ridiculously bad stories. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones you try to avoid if you can. Yeah, yeah. The uh, editors, editors trying to send you stories from Washington because they heard something at a dinner party. It's absolutely terrible. But you know, basically, as I said, you know, the quality of a journalist. The first quality to me is is curiosity, mm-hmm. and to me. You know, most stories come out of curiosity. I see something. I you, personally see, you've seen something. Or I either see or something, something or I've read something uh, in a local or paper or I've met somebody who told me something. Okay. And if I say, wow, that's interesting, then I think the reader is going to be interested in it too. Give us a small example if you can. Sure. I'll give you a, a couple of quick examples. Yeah. Uh, for example, when I first moved to Shanghai uh, you know, back in uh, 2009 – 
I remember just walking down the street in Shanghai, and the first thing I noticed was all this laundry hanging out of the windows because they 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 and I realized what are they doing? They're drying their clothes and they hang them on in trees on on lamp poles. They have uh, poles that stick out of windows and hang out their laundry. And I thought this was really fascinating because I hadn't actually seen that in Beijing before where I was. It was probably too cold to hang laundry out. You don't really see it in Hong Kong. So I just started poking around and I discovered that not only do people in Shanghai like to dry their clothes in the sun, but they actually have an aversion to using dryers, clothes dryers. And so I just started poking around and I also discovered that the city of Shanghai then was getting ready for the Shanghai Expo. And they actually put out an edict telling people not to hang their laundry out in public where it might be seen by all these foreign tourists coming in. So then I so – so then what do I do with this? So I started poking around saying, now, why is this? So first I just started asking some of my friends who, from Shanghai, you know, what, what's, what is it about – do you own a dryer would be my first question. They all said, oh, no, no, I would never use a dryer. I said, why don't you use a dryer? They said, oh, it's just tradition. You know, we just think it's unsanitary and we think that the sun is healthier for the clothes. And then so I decided, now what else, do you, how do, what else do you do with this story? So I went around to a few of the high-end department stores in Shanghai and started asking the salespeople, do you sell you know, appliances here? Yes, you do. Do you, what do, you, do you sell washing machines? Oh, plenty of washing machines. Do you sell clothes dryers? And I said, oh, no, we can't sell a single clothes dryer here. And I just found that absolutely fascinating that the this one appliance really... they cannot sell in China is the clothes dryer. Uh, so this really starts from an anthropological observation and then you build the story it, it, it absolutely does just and literally that just started from yeah. just walking down the street Ilaria, can you give us a different kind of example um yeah well that is really the way things happen so you'll see something in the street um to stick to shanghai and uh, interesting ways of uh, things that happen in the streets of shanghai which are among the most interesting streets i find in um in China, there's a lot of people walking around in pyjamas, hmm. which also was one of the things that they were trying to stamp out for the expo because it was considered not nice enough, not international enough, I don't know. And uh, I think we all did a few color stories on, uh, on Shanghai around the expo. And one I did was not so much on people going around in pyjamas, but on the fact that the government thought that that was not a nice thing, which hmm. I, I think... Nobody who's seen people going around in pyjama ever thought anything else but that this is so cute (laughs) and why are people doing it? So the way, again, same way, I saw it in the street. I told my editor this was happening and I also said that the authorities were not happy with it. And so the story was about both things. Mm. And uh, otherwise, sometimes you just have uh, stories which really present themselves, like if... Uh, like just now, North Korea decides to detonate um, a nuclear bomb. Then, of course, everyone is going to cover that. There's course, not, yeah. there's, there's, you know, that's just what is happening. That's why you're reporting the news. And uh, otherwise, sometimes an editor assigns you onto something that uh, you want to run away from as fast as you can, or that it actually opens a window of something that you never heard about before, and you think, oh, that's super interesting, which goes back once again to that curiosity. However, um, it's always best to come slightly prepared to whatever your editor may come up with. Free media, so media that is not censored by the editor or by the authorities where it comes out. Censorship means... Uh, having difficulty in access 
So yes. it means that you cannot speak to certain government officials, you cannot uh, obtain certain documents, certain statistics, certain... Uh, so these are things that are censored at the source. And I think that's what I meant, rather than somebody cancelling your copy, but the, the fact that you, you're trying to get information and it's... And you just cannot access it. Mm. Well, that's something that I'm sure everyone who has worked in Hong Kong for a long time uh, sees as an issue. It used to be really quite easy to talk to various government departments directly. These days you always have to send in written requests and they will reply in writing. But the thing is, like, I did this story... Um, just a few months ago for The Guardian about how Hong Kong was gluing bricks to the pavement just before the visit of uh, an important state official from China. And uh, I was walking around the street and I see that the bricks were shining around the edges and I just thought, well, why? What's going on? And uh, that's when I realized that they had been gluing them. So in case anyone wanted to protest, they wouldn't be able to dislodge the bricks and throw them in protest. Um, that seems to have been a response to the uh, Lunar New Year Mong Kok yes. protests. Yep. And so when I saw this, I thought, I can tell what is going on. I can say probably why this is happening, but it would be great to speak to someone in government who says I don't know who decided that they were going to glue it, how much glue was being used and how much it cost, you know, things that, details that in a story like this are both interesting but also funny to some extent. And it was absolutely impossible. I had to call various departments and it used to be that if you go on the web page or you just call the main switch, you would be told who to speak to. Everyone would have a press person. Today there is um, one general number and you keep on dialing various departments following the menu that the recording tells you to follow. And on the webpage there's no more uh, press spokesperson that you can contact directly. So it's become more difficult. Very difficult to have mm. access. Very difficult to have a reply. So after a long time, you finally speak to a human and they invariably tell you to send in written questions. Mm. So once again, and then you have to wait for an answer. So if they don't want to reply to you for whatever reason, they can just stall. And if they wait two days and you're working for a daily, they know you're not going to be able to use it. Other times, what happens is that Basically, they use they send you back something that is so bureaucratic and meaningless. It's not a local invention. It's something that many governments do today because of this uh, false accessibility that the internet gives. It's like everything is on our web page. Yeah, but not what mm. I want to know. Okay, Keith, I want to put a last question to you. What's the most important thing you can teach your students who are going to go out and become reporters? That's a great question. What I can try to teach them is that all of these new platforms we have, digital storytelling, data visualization, uh, creating your own apps, mobile websites, uh, those are all just tools. Those are all just platforms. But the story is, is should be the same, whether it was an old print story or a current story that's going to be told on a, on a mobile app or in a digital platform of some sort. You still need to have the basics. And that's what I try to drum into them, this accuracy, verification. Everything you say has to be verified. Yep. Objectivity, you should show no bias in it. 
and it should be a rip-roaring good yarn. It still needs to be a good story. And don't get – what I try to tell them is don't get too obsessed by all these bells and whistles and all the different platforms, multimedia storytelling. It's still at the end of the day – a story that needs story. it's all about a story that needs a good narrative interesting characters that people can relate to you have to get the name spelled right you have to get the story right you have to show no bias it's th- those old traditional values don't go away just because we're presenting the story in a new platform or a new way okay a suitable place to come to an end thank you both very much Ilaria Sala Keith Richberg thanks a lot for talking to me and thank you for listening 